So here's a simple question. What does it mean to be good? He's good at football. She's good at maths. That's a good idea. Do you feel good? How good is that? Was that a good sermon? You need to have good qualifications. The word good gets used very liberally today. And because it's become so far removed from the Bible's definition of what goodness is, many people today cannot understand why on earth God should not consider them to be good. How can God possibly think that I am not good enough to be acceptable to him? Well, of course, it all depends upon your definition of good. What does it mean to be good? But it's not a new problem. We know it's not a new problem because of the way Jesus responds to the use of the word good as he's addressed by this man in verse 18 of Mark chapter 10. And it's this response from Jesus in verse 18 that I want to focus upon this morning, this single verse. Interestingly, as Jesus makes this response, there is no reply recorded from the man. I suspect he had a rather bemused look on his face. Why on earth has Jesus just asked that question? What's that got to do with it? How much did he even understand of the meaning that is loaded into verse 18? Probably not so much. Now when you look at verse 18, you see that we can break it down into two very simple components. It begins with a simple question. Why do you call me good? And then that is followed by an emphatic statement. No one is good, but one, that is God. Or as many other translations put it, no one is good except God alone. I want you to ask, I want to ask you to consider with me those two phrases. So let's begin with the question. Why do you call me good? Why? Now when Jesus asks the question of this man, is he calling into question the man's sincerity? Is he maybe suggesting that the man might only be calling him good teacher to give an appearance of respect in the hope that Jesus will treat him favourably? Is Jesus suggesting that this man is using the term good as a term of ridicule or with sarcasm? Not at all. Indeed, this man seems to be asking with deep concern. He seems to be a man of genuine intent. 
He seems to be a man coming to Jesus with real purpose. And surely he addresses Jesus as good teacher with the utmost respect and courtesy. I don't think there's anything here to suggest otherwise. But Jesus picks up on this man's use of the word good. Now, if he hadn't done so, we wouldn't think anything of it, would we? We think, well, of course Jesus is good. But Jesus stops him and asks him to consider it. Because Jesus wants to highlight and he wants to challenge the error that exists in this man's thinking. Jesus wants to challenge the error that exists in this man's understanding of spiritual things. As Alexander McLaren put it, what Jesus says here in verse 18 is a rebuke to this young man's shallow conception of goodness. And that really is the issue here. His shallow conception of goodness which is exactly our problem with how we use the word today. You see, this man has set the bar way too low in understanding what goodness is. The same problem that we have today. This man is, in his own estimation of himself, probably, almost certainly, he thinks he's a good man, with a good desire, with a good question, and so he's come to a good teacher who can hopefully give him a good answer. That's how this man's thinking. But, says Jesus, why? Why do you call me good? So this question is intended to challenge his notion of what is good and what good actually means. Because this man, this man like us today, throws around this word good very liberally with no real thought for what it really signifies. Jesus knows that in referencing him as a good teacher, the man is simply being polite and respectful and in that context is using the word relatively like we do. Now what do I mean by using the word relatively? He's calling Jesus a good teacher as opposed to those teachers who might be not so good. At the same time, he doesn't call Jesus best teacher. He only calls him a good one. After all, he hasn't met every teacher, so how could he know that Jesus is the best? But he knows he's good. This is to think relatively. We use the word good to differentiate between that which we consider to be not so good or even bad with that which we believe is better. And so it's relative, you see. Relative to that, this is good. That's how we think. It, we, it's a comparison and a contrast. And we do it over just about anything and everything. A good meal, a good job, a good holiday, a good salary, 
a good friend, a good car, a good dog, a good goal, a good day, or even having a good cough. It's relative. We don't mean that these things are the best they could be. We don't mean that they're faultless. But compared to others that we've known, these are good. Compared to how it could have been, this is good. Compared to those people who've just had that holiday with Thomas Cook, where a couple died mysteriously during the week, you've had a good holiday. It's relative, comparing one to the other and making a judgment. We can even use the word good purely as a means of encouraging someone without actually applying any real meaningful judgment whatsoever. So when a beaming two-year-old hands you a piece of paper covered, of, covered in indecipherable scrawl, what do you say? Oh, that's beautiful. You are good at drawing. No, they're not. They're awful at drawing. But there are only two, and you want to encourage them. So you tell them they're good. There's no real honest judgment gone into it. Why do you call me good? Asks Jesus. There's a good question. Why do you call me good? Let me ask you a question. Do you consider Jesus to be good? And if you do, why? And according to what definition is he good? The danger is we think only in relative terms. Well, Jesus is just better than anyone else. Jesus is just the best man that's ever lived. And on that basis, he's good. He was a decent man. He's the best option in religion that I've come across. And so he's good. Are they the terms by which you consider Jesus to be good? Because if they are, that's not good enough. And of course, the great danger in that way of thinking is that it allows me to conclude that I am also good. Not as good as Jesus, of course. But I'm better than them. Therefore, I'm good. But what Jesus says next really throws the cat among the pigeons in our estimation of ourselves. What is goodness? Why has Jesus asked the question? Because the thing he says next is only a couple of words. Shatters everything. No one is good but one. God. The only person in this whole universe who qualifies for the title of good is God. In this one simple phrase from the mouths of Christ, the bar for goodness, the standard for goodness is put back in its proper place. This 
And this alone, says Jesus, is goodness. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, we've read from one, we've sung from another. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you'll know that the goodness of God is a regularly occurring theme throughout the Psalms. And in the Psalms, three things relating to goodness are made abundantly clear. Number one, there is no man or woman on this earth, save Christ, who qualifies for being called good. No one. Number two, only God is good and he alone is the source of all goodness. Number three, we can only ever do good as and when God permits and enables us. Now, I was tempted to give you a list of references that you could take down, but why should I do all the graft for you? Here's your homework. If you choose to accept it, go home this afternoon. You've got a bank holiday Monday tomorrow. This would be a good use of a bank holiday Monday. Get out your concordance, or if you're online, pull up something like Bible Gateway that's got a really good, easy word search facility, and look up the word good and goodness as it's found in the Psalms. Just the Psalms, that will do you. You'll find about 80 references in total. Look some of them up. Read them through. See what God's word says about goodness. See what it means and teaches about God alone being good and the source of all goodness. See how high the bar is for that which is good. And you'll see that in Mark 10 verse 18, Jesus is only repeating what his word has already made known to us. That no one is good except God alone. You'll see it all through the Psalms. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that as this man calls Jesus good, the man has got it wrong. Jesus isn't saying, why are you calling me good? He's not saying, I'm not good, is he? It's a challenge being thrown out to see if this man actually understands the gravity of what he's just said. Do you realise what that means if you're calling me good? Because only God is good. So if you're right that I am good... What's the equation you've got to come to? That's what he's throwing out to this man as a challenge. Of course, the problem is this man doesn't realise why he is correct in calling Jesus good. He's right, but he doesn't understand why. Jesus is good from the viewpoint that the man has, but the man's viewpoint of goodness is actually faulty. And of course, the problem is, that we all have is that like this man, we view goodness through a faulty lens in which we all look good, don't we? We view goodness through a faulty lens as sinful men and women so that we all look good. But when we change the lens to the one that we should be using, the lens of scripture, 
and then we view what we thought was our goodness, we discover a very different picture. Uh, It's a little bit like the experience that Claire had the other week and countless others have had when you have a cataract removed and you thought you were seeing things okay. Then all of a sudden, you see things how they really are. That's what the Bible does. It removes the cataract of sin from our sinful eye. And now we see things as they should be. As they should be seen. But here's the thing you see. When you view Christ through that correct lens, you discover that he is still good. When you view yourself through the lens of scripture, you discover that the person who you thought was good is anything but. But when you view Christ as you, as you should, you discover that he is still good. The reason? Because none is good but God. And in this Jesus is God incarnate. In this Jesus is the word made flesh. In this Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. And you see one who is good. Now it's not my theme or intention this morning to prove to you that Jesus is God. I've done that a few times in the past. But this reality is clearly taught in the Bible and it lies at the very heart of the saving good news of the gospel. That God himself in the second person of the Godhead, the eternally begotten son of the father, has come into the world in the form of a man to become our salvation for us by his death on the cross, by his being raised again on the third day. And there is salvation in no other. Because he alone is good. And in this act of astounding compassion and grace and mercy, we see the thing that we need to grasp afresh this morning. That God is good. And only God is good. The writer W.H. Auden said that goodness is something that we recognise when we see it, but it's difficult to define. He's probably right. But I think we do have to at least try and define what goodness is, don't you? We need to have at least try and define what it means that God alone is good. What is the definition of good? Well, to help us this morning, I want to quote from two men from different generations, but whose lives overlapped, who both strove to provide us with a comprehensive overview and summary of what the Bible teaches we call it a systematic theology but basically it's an overview and summary of what the bible actually teaches the first is a man called lewis burkhoff some of you have heard of him he died in 1957 he pastored two churches and for nearly 40 years served as a professor at the calvin theological seminary in the usa the second man is still alive He spent most of his life as an evangelical academic and theologian and scholar of the Bible. His name is Wayne Grudem. I think I'm right in saying he was a contemporary of yours at seminary, Keith, wasn't he? 
Let's begin with Burkhoff. Of God's goodness, Burkhoff says this. Listen, listen carefully. The moral attributes of God are generally regarded as the most glorious of the divine perfections. Not that one attribute of God is in itself more perfect and glorious than another, but relatively to man, the moral perfections of God shine with a splendour all of their own. They're generally discussed under three heads or headings. The goodness of God, the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God. First of all, he talks about the goodness of God. In our ascription of goodness to God, the fundamental idea is that he is in every way all that he as God should be. Hmm. And therefore answers perfectly to the ideal expressed in the word God. He is good in the absolute perfection and perfect bliss of himself. He is inherently good in himself, in other words. Since God is good in himself, he's also good for his creatures and may therefore be called the fountain of all good. Of course, that's what the Bible says. And is so represented in a variety of ways throughout the Bible. The poet sings, Psalm 36, For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we shall see light. All the good which the creatures enjoy in the present and expect in the future flow to them out of this inexhaustible fountain. Not only that, God is also the highest good for all his creatures. Isn't that wonderful? The goodness of God. God is good in terms of his moral perfection he's good in terms of the purity of his virtue all these qualities can be seen in many aspects of God's nature and work as we saw in that hymn of Isaac Watts one of the really important things that comes out of Burkhoff's definition is this use of the term absolute perfection absolute perfection if only God is good and good is absolute perfection, then we're dealt a hammer blow to our egos. We are confronted by this very uncomfortable truth. There are no degrees of goodness. Now there's something to think about. If only God is good, question, are there degrees of goodness in God? No. There is only one degree of goodness of God, and that is goodness. Absolute perfection. There are no degrees of goodness. There are in our thinking, but that's sinful thinking. Goodness is a fixed absolute. It's not a sliding scale. We love to think of a measuring stick divided into two halves. In the middle is zero. On this side, the stick is painted black. And it goes from minus one to minus a hundred. And that's not good. 
This side of the stick is painted white. And that goes from plus one to plus a hundred. And that's good. And along the length of this measuring stick, somewhere, we place ourselves and we place everybody else. There are some who we decide must be in the black. Quite where? That's open to opinion, but definitely in the black. As for me, well, if you don't mind me saying so, I must be somewhere in the white. Uh, would I dare publicly to suggest that I'm up in the 90s? Probably not. The 70s? Mm -hmm. Maybe not publicly, although within my own heart. Mm -hmm. But I'm definitely, definitely in the white somewhere, surely. Surely. And that's all that God must be interested, isn't it? That I'm somewhere on the white side? God's measuring stick is very different. God's measuring stick has one little white mark at one end. And it's labelled good. Right at the other end, there's a little black mark. And that's labelled not good. And there's nothing in between. Nothing. God is good. The words of Christ, God alone is good. Everyone else, therefore, must be not good. Are there degrees of not good down at that end? Yes. But it's all down there at the opposite end. Guess where you are. I'll give you a clue. You sat right next to me. Right down there. Not good. Only God is good. That's shattering to the sinful heart. But that's the truth of God's word. That's the very word of Christ. Wayne Grudem helpfully builds upon what Burkhoff says. He likewise acknowledges God, of course, as being the source of all goodness. Every good and perfect gift coming from above, the Father of light, in whom there's no variation or change. But his... His initial definition of goodness, which he phrases slightly differently, but is also very helpful. He says this. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. And that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. He takes this angle, worthy of approval. Good can be understood to mean worthy of approval. But we have not answered the question... Approval by whom? In one sense, we can say that anything that is truly good should be worthy of approval by us. But in a more ultimate sense, we are not free to decide for ourselves what is worthy of approval and what is not. 
And that's what the world is doing out there right now, isn't it? With all of these latest changes in culture and society that are going on, they've decided they are free to decide what's good and what's not good. And things that used to be widely accepted as not being good, society out there has now said, no, they are good after all. They've changed their minds. Well, it's not down to us to make those kinds of decisions. Ultimately, therefore, Grudem says, God's being and actions are perfectly worthy of his own approval. He is, therefore, the final standard of good. Jesus implies this when he said, no one is good but God alone. But if God himself is good, and therefore the ultimate standard of good, then we have a definition of the meaning of good that will greatly help us in the study of ethics and aesthetics. What is good? Good is what God approves. Full stop. We may ask then, why is that that God approves it? Because he's God. And because he's good. Because he is. Because he is absolute moral perfection and goodness. There is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with his character. There's another definition of goodness that's helpful, I think. In other words, to be good is to be godly and to be godly is to be good. When he talks about God declaring good that which he approves of, I think of how he described his own work of creation at the end of day six. He looked upon his handiwork and he saw that it was good. Actually, it says very good. It's a superlative. And that means much more than it simply looked stunning, which it did, but it's more than that. According to his judgment, and that's the only one that matters, he could find nothing that was faulty. He could find nothing that could be improved upon. He found nothing in his creation that could be made better than it already was. It had God's full approval. Full approval from one who is perfectly morally upright and virtuous and just. It met with his approval. And of course it did because God's creation was a perfect reflection and extension of his own character and nature when he first made it. Man himself was made in his own image. Of course man was good. Anything less, it would have been classified as not good. So God is in himself a person of moral perfection, of completeness. And everything that God does meets with his own approval because he alone is the final and absolute standard of good. This is not the message the world wants to hear. So this verse 18 is quite some verse. In its brevity, it completely belies the weight that it carries. Here in this truth is revealed the whole problem of mankind. Here in this truth is the explanation of why our news headlines are constantly filled with pain and suffering and acts of violence and wickedness and vengeance and greed and exploitation and depravity of every kind because only God is good. Here is why so many find life so depressing and unfulfilling. 
Here is why relationships are constantly breaking down and causing such heartache. Here is why presidents and prime ministers and governments are constantly being criticised and deserving to be. Here is why nations are always somewhere in the world at war with other nations. And here is why nothing that we try to do about it makes any difference at all. Because there's only one who is good. And that is God. And we've walked out on him. That's the message of the Bible. But here also is our hope. Because God is good. Because it is this one who is good. This God whose every thought and action is only good. Who's loved us and saved us. Who's chosen to make us the objects of his goodness. Isn't that an amazing thought? In Psalm 23 when David declares that goodness and mercy shall follow him all the days of his life. What a promise that is. The goodness of God following you. What a thought that is. Not that God is like some great doting grandfather in the sky who gives you everything that your sinful heart craves, but that in everything that he brings into your life, if you are his child, it is in accordance with his goodness. And it has his perfect approval. Let that thought sink in. His absolute moral perfection. He will never be Or behave less than God should be and behave. Nothing that will ever be brought to you. That does not meet with his own approval. Because he's good. Think upon that as he leads you through various trials. He does that out of his goodness. Even these are according to his goodness. And they're for your good and for your edification. When this man fell on his knees in front of Jesus... And called him good teacher. He had no idea just how loaded those words were. God alone is good. The good news of the gospel is that through Christ you can know him. You can be reconciled to him. And you can know his goodness and know his love and his grace. And when we gather this evening, God willing, to consider the answer that Jesus gave to this man's question. How can we not sit up and hang on every single word that comes from the mouth of Christ? To know that the one who is speaking to us is good. Do you want to hear from the mouth of a good man? There's only one. And that's Christ. Only one. He's God. He's the only one who can bring to you and do for you something which is truly good. And in him alone will your soul find the goodness that it craves.